like grass in the sun, um, the mist that vanishes is from James, the grass in the sun is from Psalm, and we talked about how God provides for us, um, as you can see in the Sermon on the Mount, um, even though we're uh, like a grass in the sun and like the birds of the year, how much more God takes care of us. And I shared a few examples from my own life about how I had realized um, when I was younger, I had all these visions for how parenthood was going to be, how great it was going to be, that my children were going to be perfect. And um, I realized that I am powerless over uh, a number of things that when I was younger I didn't realize I was going to be quite so powerless over. I took for granted that I wouldn't be as powerless as I found myself as both a mother and in a new job that I've had for about a year and a half where I just I sit there and I look at what's on my what has been tasked to me and I think I am not equal to this. I am not equal to the tasks that have been assigned to me. Um, so I've experienced that in my home and outside my home at work, and I trust that you have too. And I have found comfort, and the scripture points us to leaning into the fact that God knows we're a blade of grass. He made us, we are um, a mist that vanishes. And so what comfort can I take from that? From knowing that God's going to provide for me. He, it was always going to be that way. And accepting that reality um, is where I find, where we can find peace and joy and lean into admitting our powerlessness um, and just <coughs> taking the next step. So Sue Bonner, oh, where is Sue? There she is. <laughs> she gave just the perfect example of powerlessness. And I don't know how many of you were here last week, but it, it and I hope you could hear her. Um, but it was just the perfect example of realizing that she's not going to get to drive her car anymore. And she had to go through a period of accepting her powerlessness over that and then leaning into lift. Um, <laughs> and I, it was just the perfect um, example. So what I'd like for you to do now is to think for a minute, let's take about 30 seconds just to be quiet, close your eyes if you need to, and think of an example from your week or maybe you observed it in somebody else, butting up against an area where they were powerless, just think about that. And after about 30 seconds, I'll say, okay, pair up. And I want you to pair up with someone near you who's not your spouse and um, share. So think, pair, share. So take 30 seconds to think. All right, let's pair. Please pair and share for about 30 to 45 seconds each. All right. Here we go. Okay, so let's get a couple of let's get a couple of shares. Let's get a couple of shares.
shares. You can either share what you shared or share what your buddy shared. I'll go, Laura. Thank I appreciated you. the reminder to be out in nature last week because um, I have felt powerless over time lately, just that there's this much time and I feel like I need this much time. And so um, I, my, I homeschooled my kids and it was recess time and they were going outside to play and I could have easily stayed inside and tried to work, but I knew I needed to be outside to kind of settle. And so I heeded your suggestion and went out for a walk and I felt like my, this, my day went better because I went out in nature, so. Mm -hmm. That's good, yeah. that's good. Yeah, sometimes just getting out and feeling, just inhaling this pretty fall air, it smells good and it feels good and just feeling the breeze in your hair a little bit kinda brings it all back down to reality. Puts it all back in perspective. We are God's created, just like the birds in the grass. Thank you. Somebody else? There is kind of some, a, a, a nice alleviation of responsibility and accepting that, that powerlessness because I, I, for the longest time, I worked in a job where a lot of people reacted to what I did in ways that I would never see. Mm -hmm. And so I got used to kind of putting stuff out there and not really knowing what effect that it might have. And so I kind of got used to that idea of powerlessness. And that that has turned into nice training for more life and death kind of issues because then when those come along, we're you really kind of like to be able to change the way that things are going to turn out, but you know you don't have any way of doing that, it, it, it makes it a little bit easier to, to stomach and go, let's see where this takes us. Yeah, that's good, that's good. And that's, that's I think, why addicts study the 12 steps and practice the 12 steps, is that, you know, they're struggling to control something, an outcome that they cannot control. And as long as they stay there, uh, there's lots of anxiety, lots of pent-up frustration, lots of shame, lots of disappointment and trying to force an outcome that just won't come. But when they take the, when they, when they take the first step and they accept I'm powerless and then accept God is powerful and then third step I'm going to give this to him because he's powerful and I'm powerless. The relief that comes from not trying to force the outcome and realizing, sometimes you realize, I was never going to be able to accomplish that outcome. And you realize, oh my, I wish I had done that sooner. And where else can I apply those principles? I'm spending a lot of time spinning trying to control outcomes that I was never going to accomplish controlling. Well, two weeks ago, I had two friends to come down with serious illnesses. One of them had a heart attack and flatlined. And uh, the doctor at uh, Scala, one of the other hospitals said, let's give up on it. Another doctor said, no, kept working on it and came back. And he was in another friend and he started having 
flourishing speech. My question to the hospital the next day. They put him on the IV, he started to get better. And in route to rehab, he started reading, went to a public hospital, I went to his funeral. But when both of the events occurred around the same time, I, I just had a premonition that one of my friends was going to die. And I really didn't expect him to die the flat line that he was going to die. But it so happened that I had to stroke him. Both of them close friends. One of them was my, it's been my friend since I was born. The other one's been my friend before he was a But just going to the funeral and walking by I felt all sorts of emotions. I felt angry. I felt, I felt judgmental. I guess I was angry with God. I was just mad. Uh -huh. uh, and I didn't have no That's It's a horrible feeling. Even going to the graveyard. Surreal. It's just, you can't believe what is happening. And I, I didn't have to call it. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Thank you, Richard. That is part of the human uh, condition that hard to accept in the moment, but big picture. We can choose to accept it or we can choose not to, but it's, it's how it is. We are not in control. Well, thank you, everybody. All right, I'm going to hand it over to Lee, who's going to share the lesson. Thank you, Laura. So um, we've been suggesting in here that um, one way to think about um, things like the book of Proverbs, the book of James, even in some ways the Sermon on the Mount, is in light of what biblical scholars call wisdom literature. That is that wisdom literature is um, a genre in which the observer observes the way life commonly works and then says this is the way it commonly works and if you do it this way then you get this kind of result and if you do it this way you get this kind of result um, and so there's this um, another way to think about it is that there's a uh, there's a common distinction in the history in theology called the distinction between common grace and supernatural grace, or infused grace, or different kinds of terms, and that. So the notion of common grace, so grace just being the gift of God, an unmerited gift of God. So the notion of common grace is that God gives the gifts of life to everyone, and there is in the structures of reality these common graces that even people who have nothing to do with a religious faith or religious tra tradition are able to discern because this is the way God has made things. And then there's the notion of kind of transcendent or infu uh, uh, infused grace in which we are given through the sacraments, things like baptism or things like communion, uh, things like marriage and, and so forth, special gifts of grace that sustain us or redeem us or allow us to have some sort of capacity that we would not have otherwise. And so the notion here is that in looking at the way the world works, in the notion of common grace or the wisdom literature, what can we discern about this is the way life is. And in living this way, life can flourish in ways it will not otherwise. Now, this is interesting when you start laying alongside um, other sorts of philosophical traditions. And so I've, I've alluded a few times, for example, to somebody like Aristotle, right? So he, 
he has these notions of wisdom, this notion of, of virtues, and his virtues are these habits and practices by which he says this is how we live a flourishing life, or a happy life, or an abundant life. And again, abundant, not in the way some of the health and wealth gospels talk about abundance, but abundant in kind of maybe the way the Gospel of John talks about abundant. And so, um, Aristotle said, and, I, and I'll, let me go to him just a second, then I'm going to come back to the wisdom literature. So Aristotle said there, there are four cardinal virtues. And he says these are the four habits which any human being must aspire to and learn to practice if their life is going to have any sort of capacity for goodness, any sort of capacity for living well. And those are courage, prudence, temperance, and justice. Courage, well, just think about this, right? And I, I thought about courage, I thought some years ago teaching, you know, I teach ethics classes generally, and it occurred to me, you know, we can talk all day long, all semester long about various ethical issues, but if my students have no courage, it, I've wasted my time. Because if they can't finally at some point speak up and say something when it's hard, or do something when it's hard, then you can't do the other stuff, right? That's why he calls it a cardinal virtue. This is another a very quick uh, soapbox I'm kind of starting to get on in higher education. And that is that we, we talk so much, I think, I, I'm increasingly concerned that we're talking so much about making safe spaces for people that we're forgetting that education often means that you're often unsafe in the emotional sense. Because it's hard to be challenged. And it's hard to be pushed and if education gets reduced to what do you feel comfortable with, then we never have the opportunity to become a courageous human being. Well, for Aristotle, you've got to grow in courage. Prudence, you've got to figure out the consequences, potential consequences of what you're going to do and think what's the best choice for this right now. Temperance, you can see why temperance is so important, right? If you're always going too little or too much, then that has very deleterious consequences for life as a whole. And then justice. Now, I'm going to talk about justice just a second to get us into where we're going to go today. Um, so Aristotle will say, look, you can have all of these virtues. You can have courage, you can have prudence, you can have temperance. But, he says, if we don't have justice, we still can never have a flourishing life because, for Aristotle, we are social creatures. And because we are social creatures, if we refuse to pay attention to justice, then we can never live a flourishing life. Because justice is at its heart about equitable social relationships. Are you, everybody with me so far? And so for him, it's like, if, if you, that's why he counts it as one of the four. One of the four cardinal virtues. Now here's, here's why I want to switch to Christianity just a minute. It, it deeply concerns me that I think it's, it's commonly possible for someone to be a devoted, serious Christian for the whole of their lives and never to come to the conclusion that thinking, struggling for, fighting for, dealing with issues of justice is not a tangential matter for Christianity but is part and parcel at the center and the core of Christianity. And I get confused about why that could be the case. So let's go to our text we're working on. Sermon on the Mount. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and it's what? Right. And that's the way we translate it. But did you know 
that uh, in Hebrew there's two words, one for righteousness, one for justice. Uh, in Greek, New Testament, <coughs> the same word that can be translated just, righteousness is also often translated justice. So it's a perfectly good translation in the Sermon on the Mount to translate it, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its justice. And I tend to think that's why we ought to start translating it all the time. For at least a decade. Or a generation. <laughs> and then things will swing back the other way and then we need to start translating it righteousness again. right? But when you hear the word righteousness, what does that mean to you? Piety, spirituality, religious stuff. Right? When you hear the word justice, what does that mean to you? What does it connote to you? Getting what you deserve. Getting what's deserved. Fair. What's fair. What else? I heard something over here, but I didn't hear what you said. Making things right. Making things right. Um, so justice kind of much more carries with it an explicit social connotation, right? Um and here you have it at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. At the center of it. Seek first the kingdom of God and its justice. So would that be cause and effect? That if we seek first the kingdom of God, then its justice will come? Um, it could be interpreted that way. And certainly um, because Christians believe the kingdom of God has come and yet has not come fully, we can say that we know when the kingdom of God comes fully, then God's justice will come fully. Um, but I think you can also rightfully interpret it and say what Jesus is calling us to is to seek the kingdom of God and to seek the justice of the kingdom of God. But not everything will be right. Um, not until the fullness of the kingdom of God, right. Yeah, so we live in this, so the so-called so uh, eschatological stuff that we live in is that we live between the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here and its justice is here now but not yet fully. Right? And so we in the meanwhile you might think about it this way um, in Ephesians when Paul or, or Deutero Paul talks about the church in Ephesians um, he says in Ephesians 3 that the church is to show to the principalities and powers the wisdom of God. Now, um, in other words, we tend to think that the church is about being is about showing the world how to be religious. But what Paul does there in Ephesians is he says what the church is about is about to show to the world what the world is supposed to be. See the difference between that? Let me say that again. What he says in Ephesians is that the church is called to show to the world what the world is supposed to be. Um, so we're, the, we're called to be this sort of um, light on a hill. And that the world is supposed to be able to look at the church and say, ah, that's what the world should look like. Not, ah, that's how we should be religious. But, ah, that's what the world is supposed to look like. So, um, you have this, we can look at all sorts of places in the, in the New Testament about this. Now let me go back to some of our other texts we've been working out of. So you look, for example, at the book of James. All right, in James chapter 5, you have this very provocative text towards the rich. 
and, uh, in, and in letting the rich have it in James chapter 5. Um, he's particularly concerned that the poor uh, have not had fair wages paid to them and that their wages have been held back, that fair wages have been held back from them. And he makes it very clear, no, no. Judgment's going to come, and it's going to come hard for that. Uh, or in James chapter 2, he has the notion of favoritism, right? The favoritism, not getting what's fair, not getting what's equitable, based upon riches or poverty. And he said, no, no, that's not how it is to be among the people of God, this sort of favoritism. This is not of God, this favoritism. Or let's look at uh, Proverbs quickly. I'm going to throw a lot of text at you really fast. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, then uh, we'll start in chapter, let's start in chapter 20. Verse 10. Diverse weights and diverse measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You get this stuff about weights and scales very often in Proverbs and in other places in the prophets because when you have these sort of diverse weights, what you're doing is you're ripping off the people, right? And so it's, it's the way of those, the, 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 um, the, the sellers to rip off the, the buyers, especially, as you'll see in various places, especially those who are poor. Um, verse 23, chapter 20, verse 23. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. Chapter 21, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice, there's our two different words I talked about in Hebrew. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Think about what that just says right there. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now this plays off of something that you see a lot of times in the prophets. So the uh, book of Amos, for example. So Amos is a uh, 8th century B.C. prophet. Amos, I love the story of Amos because it's this classic southern boy who goes up north and lets them have it. Right? He, um, and he, he's this unschooled southern boy. And there's this climactic moment in which he's having a showdown with the representative of the king in the north. And the king's representative is telling him, be quiet and go back home. And he says, look man, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Which is his way of saying, look man, I, my, I don't have an MDiv and my daddy doesn't have an MDiv. But God told me to come up here. And then he gets to cursing. And he really does. I mean, and you know, he, he, he says... Your children will die in the streets and your women will become whores. It's very tacky, right? Being very tacky. Very crass and very tacky. Because he wants to get their attention and to say you're not, and what he says over and over and over in Amos is you're not paying attention to justice. So you have this beautiful passage where he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or where he says, take away from me the noise of your songs and the bleating of your sheep in your sacrifices. I do not desire sacrifice, he says. I desire justice and I desire mercy. And we can multiply these sorts of texts in the Old Testament prophets over and over and over. There's this one in Isaiah chapter 2. This is beautiful use of play on words where he says, um, I, I desire mishpach, but I get mishpach. I desire, no, no, I desire mishpach, but there's mishpach. Sedekah, but there is selakah. 
translated. Trans so go back to the first one. I desire mishpat, but get mishpach. That is, I desire justice, but behold violence. Sedekah, but instead se'akah. I desire righteousness, but instead a cry. Over and over and over again, the prophets say this stuff, right? And Jesus, when you get Jesus in Luke chapter 4, where he's gone home, and what does he read? The book of Isaiah. And there he is in his home synagogue, and he opens up the, pro opens up the prophet, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Many scholars believe that the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to Jubilee, which was the mother of all capital redistribution programs. Right? And it's right there at the center. You go read the rest of Luke, and what he does in Luke is story after story after story is a living commentary on that program set up in Luke chapter 4 from that prophet passage from Isaiah. I got to preaching there. So. Um, so on and on and on in Proverbs. Somehow I got off of that in Proverbs. Um, 21, that was 3, 7. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. Verse 13. If you close your ear to the cry of the poor, you will cry out and not be heard. Verse 15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but dismay to evil doers. Chapter 22, verse 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of anger will fail. Verse 16. Oppressing the poor in order to enrich oneself and giving to the rich will lead only to loss. Or verse 22. Do not rob the poor because they are poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord pleads their cause and despoils of life those who despoil them. Uh, look at chapter 28 quickly. Verse 5. The evil do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Verse 8. One who augments wealth by exorbitant interest gathers it for another who is kind to the poor. 29.7 The righteous know the rights of the poor. The wicked have no such understanding. And verse 14 If a king judges the poor with equity, his throne will be established forever. Now, let me say this. Again, there's lots more text we could look at, but that's enough for now. Um, Let's think for just a second about the whole notion of justice. And um, one of the, I guess it was um, Plato has this definition of justice where it's something like uh, to, to give what is equitable to those who are equal. So it's, it's what we call a very formal definition of justice. So then you have to say, well, who, who are the equal people? And in, in, in Greek, Greek society, not everybody was equal, right? You have the, 
you have those who are who are the uh, at the top. You have the laborers, you have the slaves, and you have women. Um, and so you didn't have the notion that all people are equal. But what you, what justice entails is you, with those who are equal, give what is equitable to those who are equal with you. And then you still have some obligations to other people in different settings, but not everybody's going to be equal in that setting. I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to raise there is that just because we use the word justice, it doesn't mean that solves all of our problems. In other words, justice itself has a tradition, has a history of interpretation. And what is justice to some people is injustice to others, right? And so I'm not trying to naively suggest all we've got to do is read these biblical texts and now all of our problems are solved. But the first thing I want us to see here is that the cry for justice and the insistence upon justice is at the heart of the biblical tradition. And just like Aristotle insists, this is not a hobby for the few. Let me say that again. Justice cannot be a hobby for the few. Just like prayer cannot be a hobby for the few. The Bible sees justice as much a part of being the people of God as prayer is being a part of the people of God. As much as communion is a part of being the people of God. As much as baptism is being a part of the people of God, so is the work of justice. Um, and so we can't get ourselves off the hook by saying, well, that's the hobby of the few, or in some sort of very troubling instances in various Christian traditions, including our own, uh, you had, for example, you can go back and read, uh, for example, Richard Hughes' very fine chapter in his book, Reclaiming the Faith, where he talks about uh, social justice and racial issues in churches of Christ. And he talks about the ways in which a lot of, a lot of churches of Christ refused to engage questions about race in the 20th century was because they said... The gospel is about the individual soul being saved and going to heaven, not about what they called political matters. But if we step back and we look at the whole of Old and New Testament alike, we know that there is no separation between the political and the social and the spiritual. Now again, a lot of you have heard me say this repeatedly ad nauseum, that does not mean that therefore we Christians are Republicans or Democrats. It just means that all those questions matter immensely. And sometimes we'll probably find ourselves agreeing with the Republicans, and a lot of times as well we're going to find ourselves agreeing with the Democrats as well. And sometimes with the Libertarians, and sometimes with the Green Party, sometimes maybe even with the Socialists, and sometimes maybe even with the Capitalists because they have a lot of interesting, important things to say about a lot of different things. But at the heart of the, the, heart of the biblical tradition is this insistence upon equity and fairness. So, let's think a little bit more about this. In, in the Western tradition of legal traditions, um, lady justice is, is what? She's blind and holding up what? Scales. Now, we've already seen that scales are important in a lot of these texts, right? And so, th so the, the beauty of Lady Justice being objective, there are times where I ask what I want. Right? I want someone to be fair and equitable by trying to set aside their biases and holding out the scale and saying, well, how does it, how does it show? How, what's it, you know, it doesn't matter 
circumstance contingencies don't, don't matter here. And there are times in the future we want that. We want it in the marketplace. Proverbs wants it in the marketplace, right? At, at the same time, though, one of the things that happens in other places, uh, for example, I remember years ago reading this story about um, the criminal justice system in Japan, and they were contrasting blindfolded lady justice and said, uh, we're telling a story about a judge who had heard about someone who had committed a very serious crime in the community, and the judge left the courtroom and went out and looked around and started asking people questions about the person. And how's he dealt with the fallout of this? And what is he, what's he saying about it? And, and what kind of impact has it had upon the community? Because he refused to do this and said circumstances matter immensely. They matter a lot. Well, we see that in the biblical tradition this way. Um, even though, again, we saw there's points at which it says this. Very often what it says is to seek justice in what uh, some of the liberation theologians call in a way that has a preferential option for the poor. Now listen to that language just a second. Preferential option for the poor. So in other words, the, the three groups that the prophets will often say pay, pay when they talk about justice, a lot of times what they mean is not retributive justice, not punitive justice, not you break a law and you get it back, you get a penalty back, but their notion of justice is very often much more holistic, and that is how do we keep the community healthy? How do we tend to those who are weak in the community? And so the three groups they're always paying attention to are the widow, and what are the other two? Orphan, and the foreigners. The widow, the orphan, and the foreigners. And why would they be especially attentive to those three? No one else is, and especially because they're vulnerable. And they're powerless. Right? So the so widows can't own property. Orphans can't own property. Foreigners can't own property. Um, when people say things like, money doesn't matter to me, that's only because they have a whole lot. <laughs> and they're over-spiritualizing money. Money matters. And if you think money doesn't matter to you, let us take it away from you and see what you think. I'm grateful to have really good health insurance. But we, when we got married, we didn't have health insurance, and thanks to my fraternity, my knee got torn. And so we went into my marriage, went into our marriage having some, uh, some debt because of surgery. And then for quite a number of years, we didn't have insurance. And you know what happens when you don't have insurance and you go to the hospital and you start having babies? You ask about everything they're bringing into the room. And it's embarrassing. <coughs> but we're in a system where you don't ask if you've got the insurance, right? Uh, but I'm so thankful for that experience because it taught me to pay attention to things I would never pay attention to otherwise. So, so the, what the biblical tradition does is it says, try to pay it, not try, it says pay attention to those who do not have 
privileges and the prerogatives and the capital and the power that you have. Because their life is different than your life because they don't have what you and I have. Or what they have. Whatever the case may be. All right? Um, so not always this, right? But sometimes it's very close paying attention to this and paying attention to circumstances and paying attention to social systems. Second thing I want to note quickly is, is um, it's important for us to have, I think, in our shared conversation about such matters, the sharp difference between charity and justice. We are clearly called as people of faith to practice charity. But charity is a different sort of consideration to a practice of justice. Um, and there are better and worse ways for, of practicing charity and better and worse ways of trying to do works of justice. So think about the charity. We, we know the old line. To, to illustrate this, right? Give a man a fish, you what? For a day, teach a man to fish, for a lifetime, right? So in other words, that's pointing at two kinds, we, we could say, you could configure that as saying, two different kinds of charity, one's better than the other. And I, I, I can very much agree, one is better than the other. A question of justice in this example might ask what? Who poisoned the pond that the people are fishing in? Or who's got a monopoly on the fishing poles? Or who has absconded with all of the bait? Or who is controlling the mechanism by which fish are no longer spawning in the way they did a decade ago? Or asking, what is responsible for the change in the environment such that the pond is overflowing and the whole ecosystem of the pond is now no longer hospitable to the life of fish. You see what we're saying? There's questions of charity and practices of charity and then there's practices of justice. So what practices of justice are doing is saying what are the systems and the structures or the parties that are out there that are having a profound impact. It, um, I'm, I'm no um, I'm no climate scientist. But the notion that that would not be a question interesting to Christians bamboozles me. Because if what is being said is true about climate change, all of the work that we do on behalf of charity is like this is like taking a little drop and tossing it into a lake with the projected impact of climate change upon the poor if what is being said is true is it not true well i'm not a scientist so let's try to talk to good scientists if it is true, it's like, of course we need to be concerned with this because, oh my. 
or criminal justice system. If Michelle Alexander and her in, in things like the new Jim Crow, or people like Brian Stevenson in his book Just Mercy, if what they are saying is true, then it's like, oh Lord, have mercy. <coughs> Lord have mercy. If this is true. Um, and so so what I'm what I'm trying to suggest is um, not that I have expertise to be able to argue for all of these things. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that we have a lot of smart people around us. And to, to, to not only see the Christian tradition as saying you have permission to explore these things, but as saying we as the people of God are required to investigate and bear witness on these things. Obviously not all of us individually. We are the body of Christ with different gifts. But that the body of Christ is required to bear witness on behalf of justice. So, um, here's some exercises for this week. Uh, two, two I'll give you. Recognize, um, recognizing that most of us represent some sort of privilege. Then I'm going to ask us all to pay attention, to ask questions, and to look. And read articles and read articles from people that you might not normally read articles from um, and I can send out some links of some things that maybe you might want to consider but ask questions if, if you're if you're if you're like completely ignorant of the conversations going on about the prison industrial complex that's like that's like being being uh, ignorant of the issue of slavery 300 years ago so let us pay attention um, or if we're ignorant to the plight of refugees in the world right now, acknowledging that issues at the socio-political policy are complicated, acknowledge that. But if we're ignorant to the plight of refugees in the world today, like there's Luke 4 shouting at us. There's Matthew 6 shouting at us. There's the prophets shouting at us. right? Um, if we're ignorant to the plight of DACA students in our country. It's so Amos beating on our door, saying, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So pay attention. Ask some questions. Push yourself. Here's the second exercise. And this is going to be a hard one. Um, and and, and I, um, I can give these kind of assignments to my students because they have a grade and they have to report on it. But you can't, I can't do that with you. But I'm going to ask you to practice one of the other cardinal virtues of courage in this one, okay? I want you to try an experiment and see what you learn. I want to encourage you to, in some social setting in which you find yourself, it may be in your family, it may be in, in your work, it may be at the YMCA, <coughs> Bible study, to find some question about justice and ask some questions. Don't preach a sermon about it. Don't even give your opinion about it. But just ask some questions that you know will be volatile questions in that context. For the purpose of seeing if you will be courageous in that way. 
courageous on behalf of justice. And again, you don't have to assume you know all the answers, Amen. but to try, how can I raise a question about justice? Um, yeah, in some ways that's unfair because I, you know, as an academic, we write things and people get mad. Um, but let's see some examples quickly. Um, let's say that if you are in a, a context of a lot of executive leadership in a corporation, that um, you ask the question, um, if, if this fits your context, uh, why, why are we all men in the room? Or why are we all white in the room? And just ask the question. Or it might be that, um, what's another quick example? Let me think of some more examples. I'll send them out on email. Did y'all hear what I'm asking you to consider? Just consider it. See what you can come up with. One last comment and we've got to go. Will you please send links to articles? I'll do that, yes. And if anybody's not on the email list and want to be on the email list, come up here and, and give us your email address. We'll go. Thank you very much. Have a good week.